I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. Today's episode was sponsored by Nest Notes, which is a company founded by a mom named Chase Simmering, who's in Miami, and they create print keepsakes that tell stories, which as you all know, stories are like my favorite thing, whether they're family stories or stories of the places we call home. So shop kids' stationery and paper goods and little journals and all the rest um, at this amazing company, nestnotes.com. I had the best time talking to Sophie Haywood, spelled H-E-A-W-O-O-D, who wrote a hilarious and also moving memoir called The Hungover Games about single motherhood. Sophie grew up in Yorkshire, where she developed an early understanding of celebrity as the only vegetarian in the local state school. And she wrote earnest letters to the South African ambassador about apartheid at age 10. She later studied languages at King's College and Birkbeck, both part of London University, while working nights as the door girl in the legendary nightclub called Trash. She has also lived in Barcelona working as an au pair, in Hong Kong working as an extra in Chinese soap operas, and in Los Angeles, where she interviewed the famous and wrote columns on modern life for publications including the Sunday Times, Guardian, Observer, Vogue, and Vice Magazine. She was nominated for Interviewer of the Year at the British Press Awards 2019. She lives in Hackney, East London, with her daughter and hasn't quite stopped nightclubbing yet. Welcome, Sophie. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the Hungover Games. <laughs> so excited to have you on. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. Your book was so funny. I mean, literally from the opening paragraph through to the end. And of course, there's heart and soul and all the rest, but you're just so funny. And it's so great to read something that makes me laugh out loud, <laughs> especially these days, I feel like. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, thank you. I was just, I had a writer friend round to have a socially distanced drink in my garden last night. He's called Joel Golby. And we were sat there going, maybe we're not funny. Maybe we've been thinking we're funny all this time. And we're, you know, we're getting to that stage of going, what is funny? Are we funny though? So it's reassuring to hear. Yes. I I think you're funny. I really do. (laughs) If I could just read like a couple clips, this is just from the very beginning and then I'll read one more from the end. You said it had all happened by accident. I hadn't meant to have a baby at all. I hadn't meant not to have a baby either, by which I mean, I always thought I'd have children one day. It's just that I always thought those children would grow up with me and their yet to materialize father in a lovely farmhouse hugged by the hills with an aga and a dog and storybooks and trees and long invigorating walks through the fields and loving drizzle. That was not how I had grown up in Yorkshire, but it wasn't a million miles from it either. Several hundred thousand at a push. It was an idealized version of home and it lived somewhere vaguely in my future as an unspecified certainty. (laughs) And then you go into talking about how you're living in West Hollywood and the Sunset Strip and you think you're not going to get pregnant because of everything that happens. And then lo and behold, you do and what ensues after that. So that wasn't really a question. That (laughs) That was just an introduction. It was a big shock. You know, I'd been told by some, I mean, very expensive doctors, only because I happened to live near Cedars-Sinai Hospital and I got taken there with an emergency, which was something else. And whilst there, they said, oh, we've done all these tests on you and you're infertile. And, you know, it was such a shock. So to get pregnant a week after that was also a shock. Unbelievable. I feel like infertility is, I don't know. It's not a science. It's not an exact science yet. There are more times... Yeah, that I eventually had to start going and seeing for my maternity checkups. She said, you know, I've had a hundred women come in here with stories like this, this, this year, you know, it is the least understood science. I do wonder if that's because it affects women's bodies. And there are, 
you know, various studies that suggest that science has paid more attention to, to male bodies. Yeah, I I don't know. I part yes, I'm not even going to go into some of my theories here. <laughs> it's not even worth it. By the way, I lived right where you lived in in West Hollywood. By the way, for several years, and so all the places, and I still spend a lot of time in LA. But right after I graduated from college, I lived in four different apartments because of my various breakups and what have you. All within like a minute from Chateau Marmont, right on the Sunset Strip over there. So everything you wrote, I was like, oh my gosh. I've had those tacos. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you lived in LA. Tell me a little more about how the life sort of unfolded. You were a journalist and then you moved to Hollywood to try to pursue more entertainment journalism and got all these big shot interviews and stuff. And then you moved back to have your baby. Tell me the, the precursor to everything. Sure. So I'm British. I was a journalist in London. I was writing for newspapers like The Guardian and The Sunday Times and women's magazines like Elle and Vogue. And I would interview musicians. Initially, I was a sort of music kind of rock journalist. And then from that, because I got good at interviewing in general, you can also, you know, you could go and interview an actress, a film director, even a politician, a writer, anybody. So I went on a few press trips to LA that were paid for by work. And I discovered this city that I thought I would hate. You know, I thought LA was all kind of fake smiles and boob jobs and sort of shallowness and people who don't read books and sort of apoliticalness. And of course, you know, you find pockets of that, but it's like suggesting that London is all the Queen and Buckingham Palace. You know, that's just one tiny part of London life. And that kind of Hollywood myth is just one tiny part of Los Angeles. So I went to LA and started making all these friends there who were really interesting and they were readers and writers and some of them were high school teachers and poets or, you know, they worked with homeless children. I mean, they were doing all sorts of interesting stuff that makes up a whole city. And of course, there were people in the in the film industry as well. And I was interviewing celebrities. So I got to see all the glamorous stuff, which I did feed off and love, I have to say. <laughs> so yeah, so I decided to be, I got to my base myself there. And lots of British, you know, newspapers were ringing me up saying, oh, we need somebody in LA. Can you go and quickly, you know, JLo's in town. She's promoting some new music. You know, can you go and hang out in a hotel with JLo for the afternoon? So it was always really fun stuff like that. I was also approaching my mid-30s and I you know, hadn't hadn't even had the sort of relationship where you move in with a guy and think, well, maybe we'll get married. You know, I hadn't even got that far. I was very kind of running around and giddy and not committing to things and drinking quite a lot at parties. And so I just thought I had the rest of my life to sort that stuff out. And, you know, there are limits. You do have to kind of work out how to have relationships and how to build that commitment and have a family if if you want to do it that way. But what happened was I was completely giddy and chaotic then found out I couldn't have children, then had unprotected sex with someone I'd known for a long time, but in a kind of casual hookup way. And then I was somebody's mum by the end of the year. So crazy. <laughs> so I then had to learn to, you know, settle down that sort of awful dreary phase. You know, the first person I ever learned to settle down or commit to was my own child. And I suppose the book is the story of, you know, what happens, you know, everyone talks about, oh, growing up and calming down and settling down and then doing the kid thing. You know, I had the kid and then had to work out how the hell do I do the rest of it? And do I need to? Do you have to calm, you know, what is calming down? Do you have to settle down? You know, why does a mother who has a child have to stop going to parties or stop going on dates? You know, can you can you commit to your child, but also have that kind of exciting private life? So I think my book is an exploration of how that went. Well, <laughs> And some of it went. Yeah. What is your takeaway on that? So now your daughter, we were just talking. So now your daughter is eight. 
what can you yeah. still have fun and go to parties and have dating life and all the rest? What have you been able to what do you think? Like is it mutually exclusive? I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Partly why I wrote this book was because in my life, whenever I come into a difficult situation, you know, you have a certain kind of, I don't know, you have a fight with a friend that really upsets you or some work situation that you're you're not sure of. I always rack my brains. Have I read have I read a newspaper column about someone who, you know, went through this? Have I had a good friend who went through the same kind of problem with her family? You know, I kind of rack my brain for advice. And I remember going on a date when I was still breastfeeding my daughter and he had to pick me up from my house and realizing he was going to see me breastfeed. And this is in the book. And I suddenly had this dilemma thinking, I'm quite a public breastfeeder, but this man hasn't seen my boobs yet. And I don't <laughs> want to go there on the first, you know, we haven't kissed. And should he first see that part of my anatomy when someone else got them? I, I don't have, you know, I was racking my brains thinking I must, someone must know. I've got nothing in my database about should you breastfeed on a first date. And that, I think, was when I first started writing. I've got to write this book because no one else is going gonna, is gonna to tell you. That's so great. You can, I don't think you can have it all. I don't think you should follow that particular turn of phrase. But I think you can have some of it. I don't think you can have it all, the dating and the partying and the motherhood and be drunk. I think maybe <laughs> you have to get rid of the last bit. <laughs> or maybe not during the day. <laughs> I am divorced and remarried. And when I was going through getting to my second marriage, my kids were really little. I mean, they're still little, to be honest. But I remember like trying to balance all that and being like taking my like toddler with me to get a bikini wax because I was like (laughs) about to see some, you know, and be like, and she's like pounding on the door of the spa. And I'm like, I am such a bad mom right now. Like, but I need to do this because like, (laughs) anyway, it's like, anyway, being a mom is just, being a mom and dating and trying to like make it all work is just, it is hard. So I totally related to to some of the stuff in your book, although from a different angle. <laughs> that is so funny. My daughter has also come to a bikini wax with me. That's really funny. I'd actually forgotten that, but she did, yeah. Not to say <laughs> that you have to, you know, be dating to get, I'm sure other women are getting bikini waxes just to, it's a matter no, of course, I'm not but. Not no, a- I rarely do go things, but sometimes. <laughs> I remember we were once on holiday on it. I was going to put this in my book and, you know, you can only put so many stories in. But we went on holiday to a Greek island once and it was just me and her having a lovely sort of romantic honeymoon type holiday for, you know, me and a five year old. (laughs) And there was a guy at the next restaurant table who was obviously a sort of young French backpacker. I mean, not totally young, probably late 20s. But he'd obviously come to the island on his own and he was kind of smoking a French cigarette and looking beautifully out at the ocean on this Greek island. I thought I'd love to talk to him. And I said to my daughter, who was drawing pictures of her teddy bear in her sketch pad, and he looked, that man on the next table, if he'd like to draw teddy as well with your sketch pad. <laughs> so she dawdled over and said, would you, would you like to have, a, we're having a drawing call. I said, tell him it's a competition. He's got to enter the competition. She said, oh, would you like to draw my teddy bear on your drawing pad? And he said, oh, oh, yes, I would. <laughs> and then he was like, oh, would your mother like a glass of wine? I was like, here we go. <laughs> so you can use your child. You know, them. <laughs> yes, use them as bait. So he joined our table and we very yeah, drinking wine together. So, you know, you've got to not think, oh God, I wish I could talk to that guy, but my kid's here drawing a picture of a teddy bear. You've got to use it. So somewhere between breastfeeding on the first date and teddy bear drawings is is the answer to making it all work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes me like five years to get my mojo between the two stories. <laughs> 
<laughs> you also had some really funny commentary on how parenting has sort of changed over time. When you went back and compared, like, your being raised and your kids, you said, you weren't really allowed to compliment your children when I grew up. I remember once asking my mother if I was pretty. She wasn't really listening, so she said yes. Then she looked up from the Radio Times and actually contemplated my face. Well, she began again. <laughs> Yet somehow between my childhood and my daughter's childhood, the parents of Britain have become insufferable bores, constantly praising their children and telling everyone else how wonderful they are, bringing up their own slavish devotion to parenting methods, which are naturally superior to yours. Sometimes it is done as humble bragging, which is a boast dressed up as self-deprecation, something which seems particularly popular among new parents. <laughs> Tell me more about that. You know what it's like? Sometimes you have these vivid childhood memories that have sort of gently, you know, scarred you for 20 years and you go back and ask your family and they're like that never happened that never happened you know we never even went to that place and you're like I've remembered it for my whole life so I said to my mom thinking she'd be like oh for god's sake Sophie I said do you remember me asking you if I was pretty and you sort of go well <laughs> in fact there was more to it what she'd said was because after the well she said not chocolate box pretty. And as a child, I didn't know what that meant, but I could, you can tell what it means. You can tell what it, so I said to her the other day, do you think you said that to me? And she said, yeah, sounds quite possible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's going, you're not denying it. That's going away, but, you know, I think I was a perfectly reasonable looking child. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any issues with my face. It was, you know, fairly symmetrical. I think I looked perfectly nice. I think what she was possibly trying to say as a very realistic woman was like, you're fine, but you're going to need something else. Don't get hung up on your face, you know. And that's what she was saying. And I have to say she was right. You know, we do live in the world we live in. And I think I think I did at that point think, oh, I went, you know, I have I've never been sort of hung up on beauty or looks particularly. So even though I'm still annoyed she said it, I kind of get where she was coming from. Love it. The rest of your question is about sort of parenting methods. I have been so praised that they struggle to try new things in which they might fail or things they might, you know, you say to them, oh, do you want to have a go on this? I don't know. Someone's got like a toy bow and arrow or something and they don't know. They don't know how to fire it and they're going to do it wrong. So they kind of can't do it because they've been told they're a genius since birth. I think um, it's a balance, isn't it? It's a balance. It's hard. Totally. Yeah. Sometimes I just tell my kids they're all insane and. And then they laugh and run off and <laughs> that works too. <laughs> so when did you decide you were going to turn your life into a book? Well, I was already a published writer and that I was a journalist doing quite a lot of work. So through that, I sort of met people in publishing and agents. I wasn't, you know, it's funny, you write a book about being a single mom and sometimes people imagine that means you've been sort of hidden away from society, you know, not able to take part in things. And I was in the media already. So I think a literary agent had come to me when she was still a baby and said, you know, are you going to write about this? And at that stage, I was like, no, no, it's too personal. It's too much. And also, I can't tell you about being a mother. I'm still finding my feet. And then I said to him, there was this one funny thing, though. There was this thing where when I was pregnant, I went to see this gynecologist in L.A. And, I, you know, this is in the early chapters of the book where she said, do you have any questions about the pregnancy? And I say, well, you know, there's just one is it safe to use a vibrator? And and this led to a whole sort of funny incident in her office. And I told this literary agent the story and he said, he said, keep talking because I can get you a book deal this afternoon if you start writing like that. And I thought, oh God, but I didn't, I didn't get the book deal. I didn't, I didn't take his advice and I didn't do anything for about another three years because it just felt 
I mean, that's a sort of funny personal story, which is a bit embarrassing, but not not hugely. It's just kind of comic, it's almost slapstick. But, you know, to do justice to my experience of having a child with someone who, you know, was shocked. And we were both shocked by my pregnancy, but our reactions went in completely different directions. And I ended up raising her on my own. To do justice to that story, I would have to slightly tread on his, you know, into his life and his feelings. And that's a hard thing to do when there's been conflict. So it just took me years, I think, to find a way to do justice. I didn't want to sort of whitewash the story. I didn't want to say, hey, it's fine. I was left on my own and that's cool. And that's the way I wanted it. And you don't need a man. And all you need is a mother and a child. You know, I didn't want to sort of cheerlead this false narrative of like, everything's great. But I also couldn't write too much about other people's fears and other people's lives. So, and you know, you know that your child is going to read this book one day. Well, I assume she will. Maybe she won't. But I would if it was me. So I think it took a long time. I wanted to be truthful. And I have been truthful. in, But I had to find a way to do that. So she's now eight. Roughly covers sort of from me sort of, you know, my life a bit before I got pregnant to her sort of maybe starting to go to school. So maybe she's about sort of four or five at the end of it. I think that distance is helpful. But a friend, British writer, Catelyn Moran, she always says, it's amazing to write about your own life, but if you're publishing it literally as it's happening, kind of live blogging your life, that's dangerous. You need some distance from it. Very true. Well, how do you feel now that you've written it? Like, are you glad? Was it a fun experience to write it all down and relive it? Is it something like you'd want to keep chronicling, you know, through when she's in high school or I don't know? <laughs> like, what do you do? You, or do you think it's done? Like the subject matter for you as, a, in, as far as books go? I would like to write one more memoir book like this memoir in that, you know, stories from my own life experience. But she's eight now. You know, if I was to write another book by the time it came out, she might be, say, 11. I think she'll be really angry with me at some at some point in her childhood or teenage years she's she's going to be unhappy that I wrote this book after that I genuinely think she'll be thrilled because whilst it does have embarrassing family personal stuff in it it has huge amounts of love and passion and just loads of anecdotes from her early years that she won't know otherwise and I think if there was a book like that in my own family I'd have been thrilled but I think it would have taken me a while to get to that thrill Because as a 14-year-old girl, you know, you're going to feel embarrassed when you find out what your mom has done. So I don't know if I can get away with publishing the book that mentions my daughter. But I might write something else, perhaps about, you know, being a woman growing older or something like that. Excellent. So are you working on any new projects? Are you, are you, and are you still actively, you know, in the media? I know there's lots of press about you now, but are you still covering things? And Yeah. So I've just been doing some lockdown interviews, usually with celebrities. I, I still sometimes fly out to LA to do the interview or go to New York or meet them in a hotel in London, for example. And that's not been happening. So I just interviewed the amazing British actress, Kristen Scott Thomas, but I had to do it a bit like this, talking to her over Skype, which meant that my daughter, who's never been to one of my interviews, wandered in and thought I was just chatting to one of my friends, I think, and wouldn't leave the room and was like, oh, hello, nice lady on the screen. And Kristen Scott Thomas was like, oh, how old are you? And they were having a nice chat. And I was thinking, the clock is ticking. I've got to write a cover feature for The Guardian. Here. But <laughs> so that's been quite fun. Yep. Celebrity interviews, still writing some bits and bobs. I have been talking to my agent about writing fiction and she said, you know, Sophie, the tough thing about writing a novel is that you have to make the whole thing up. And I said, I know, that's the dream. (laughs) I don't know if I want to to dredge the most painful personal bits of my life up anymore. Making the whole thing up sounds wonderful. (laughs) 
That's awesome. So do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Sure. I had a creative writing teacher once. I mean, I didn't do a huge amount of creative writing courses. I didn't do a degree or anything, but I went to some evening classes. And a woman once said to me, if you can't write anything, if you sit there typing or with your pen and paper and the voice in your head that tells you you're terrible, just, you know, really tells you that you're writing rubbish, you're writing trash, nonsense. She said, you can just sit there and type the sentence, I am writing rubbish, I am writing rubbish, I am writing rubbish. She said, you can do that for three whole pages, if you like. And after three pages of typing, I am writing rubbish, you'll get so frustrated and angry that you might type something else. (laughs) It does work. She also told us to set a timer for five minutes, not two hours, not two weeks, five minutes, and write without stopping for five minutes, and then look at how much you've done. And and really, it's a lot. You can write so much in five minutes that makes you think, oh, I spent years saying I don't have the time to write, you know, because I've got kids or, or, you know, a career or all of those things. When you see how many words you can do in five minutes, it's really interesting. It's excellent advice. All excellent advice. Amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I am such a fan of yours now. I am like going to be following every little thing you do. I'm so glad I read your book. I really needed that laugh and humor and that British, you know, cleverness that only you guys seem to be able to <laughs> to really corner the market on. So, uh, And I've grown up reading American literature. I always thought you guys had it best. So it's extraordinary to find out that Americans love British writing so much. Yes, it's very true. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And thanks for sharing your life story in the Hungover Games and all of it. I I truly appreciate it. So, (laughs) Thank you, Zibi. Bye. Bye. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at zibbyowens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to nestnotes.com for sponsoring today's podcast. Check them out for some amazing print keepsakes that tell your family stories. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 